Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's get started. Oil and gas pricing is recovered some. One thing I would say that from our going is coming your town and our businesses, no one expects the backwardation. In other words, the price, the current price of oil is compared to the price about three or four years change. You know, that, that backwardation, $30 a barrel and natural gas, it's like $2 or $2.50 or $3 per MCF. And the thinking seems to be that there's so much uncertainty that, and, you know, it'll price of oil at a hundred dollars now the price out three years four years from now 70 well you know when we get to july of 23 we don't know what the current price is going to be at that time but let's say it doesn't change let's say it's 90 let's say it's ten dollars lower that they'll still be thirty dollars backwardation so the price out three years from now will be 90 plus 30 or 60 but when you finally get to 24, 25, the price of oil is liable to be, you know, $80, $90, quite a lot more than if you sold the oil for $70. What's going on here? And you could make the same observation about natural gas. What's going on here is interesting. I don't know whether I've mentioned this in any preceding Wednesday, but it's an insight I just had, and I, it didn't originate with me as Someone raised it, and I said, my goodness, that's right. The futures curve, or the futures trading, of what oil is worth three years from now, now 22, so let's say 25, is a different supply-demand situation than actually the physical oil. By that, I mean, if you're a producer, and you think, well, Maybe I'll be higher, but I want to pretty well secure that $70 price. So you're a seller of that contract. The purchaser of that contract might be a, a railroad, you know, that uses oil, uses diesel, might be a uh, trucker, might be uh, someone who is a user of oil and looks at the situation and says, I'm worried that it might be higher. I'd like to protect myself a user of that oil at $70. What happens is if there's more sentiment amongst producers, of actually it's been awfully volatile oil, it's been as low as $20. I'd like to sell my $25 oil for $70. It creates a supply of people who want to sell oil and that may overwhelm the demand that people want to buy oil. So that's not a matter of how much oil supplies are going to be at 25 and what is the demand going to be at 25? That's what is the supply of people who want to sell the contract and what is the demand? Completely different. I mean, related, but different. So I think the way you have to cope with that in a, in a backward-aided market is you have to run with very little debt and you have to have enough flexibility in your capital program that if you see the price of oil start to fall off, you just don't drill as many wells. Now, 
oil is a depleting, and same is true of gas, oil, gas, depleting assets. So if you just hold the oil, let's say you're producing 5,000 barrels a day, quite a lot of money, and, and you do nothing, you don't drill any wells, three years from now, conventional production would be producing 3,000 barrels a day, and six years from now, you're producing 1,000 barrels a day. So, you know, your asset is going away from you. In order to have a business of holding oil and making money, having it be comparable to Facebook or Google or Microsoft or Bassinol or Lowe's or, you know, Caterpillar or any, any companies that we, Comcast, Carmax, I'm calling out companies that own interest in for many years. In order to be comparable to those companies, you have to drill wells to replace the decline in production, which is going to be probably the average 15% across the whole industry. So 5,000 barrels a day, that's 15%. That's going to turn into, you know, 600 barrels. So 5,000 barrels a day this year will be, you know, like 42 or 4,300 barrels a day next year. So the only way to have a business that compete with those other industrial businesses is to be able to spend percentage significantly less than their cash flow, like say 60 or 70 percent of your cash flow, and add enough production, make up of the depletion, and then grow. So if you hold some oil companies, you hold Diamondback, you hold Magnolia, if you hold Pioneer, if you hold whatever you hold, I just picked three oil producers, if you hold gas producers, if you hold Antero, you hold EQT or other Marcel's company, you have to subject them to that test. And they, at the end of the year, have they paid down debt or accumulated cash, paid a dividend, maybe bought in stock and increased their production. You hold oil and gas producers to that standard, you're going to find that three quarters of all the spending, maybe not two quarters, maybe it's two thirds, but way more than half of all the spending isn't getting that done, not getting that done. So even at the higher prices, obviously it's easier to do at higher prices. In order to have a successful investment, given the $30 backwardation and the $2 backwardation in natural gas, you have to have a company that has little or no debt so you don't have to hedge. And then you have to have that capital efficiency. And if the management sees overall prices coming, they just curtail some of their drilling activity, but you can't curtail it to zero because then your production will just deplete. I mean, you're just a, a wasting asset. So this is pretty challenging to have a company that produces oil, produces gas, that can meet those standards. Now, what does this mean on a worldwide basis? What does this mean for the price of oil? What does Ukraine invasion mean? I mean, there's all these questions. I think that the price is likely to stay somewhat high. What would keep the price from going back to $20? People who make those reinvestment decisions from the very large companies, sovereign oil companies, I mean, the largest company is Saudi Aramco, 10 million barrels a day of production, but, you know, are tending to spend less and take the chance if their production goes down because they're worried that they need 
to invest away from the production of oil in order to have a business 10, 15, 20 years from now. So Saudi Aramco out in the desert put in this huge operation to make hydrogen. And since they're in a desert, they can put in a limited amount of solar rays. Solar rays make power, and then they use the power to electrolyze water to make hydrogen. And so some part of their budget, rather than drilling more wells, they be out there making hydrogen. And, and then mixing the hydrogen with nitrogen molecules to make it into ammonia and transporting it to Japan. I mean, that, if you read a Saudi Aramco in report, I don't know, some significant amount of their cash flow, 10 or 20% is being, well, to the extent that Exxon and Total and Shell and whatnot do that, what is happening is you'll get, you're going to have more depletion, less reserve replacement to the extent that it's changeover to alternatives to last week we talked about oil being a transportation fuel, but the changeover alternatives, the extent it lags, you're going to get these price spikes. The only way to take advantage of the price spikes is to not be hedged. So it's a challenging area in which to invest. But over the last 12 months, more where all equities, almost all equities have gone down, these equities are up 20, 30, 40%. The question is, that's looking at what's kind of hindsight. Now, if you're really interested in having, if you own 10 stocks, you want a couple of them, two or three of them to be, have, be part of the energy industry broadly defined, to be very strict because you got to make sure that they can beat depletion and increase their production. Not an easy thing to do, but the tools aren't that complicated. You just make sure that they're spending less than all their cash flow and their unit production is going up. They don't have too much debt. And, you know, and that, that's something, I mean, we, we, we started to speak from 10 Qs and I'm not really, I have the 10 Qs for the tech company, but I think one of the things we might want to do is the second quarter results come in is get some 10 Qs, get a 10 Q for Pioneer, 10 Q for Diamondback, 10 Q for Magnolia, 10 Q for Rantero. I can, with Mike's assistance, lead you through those and look for how you have to, if, if you own any of these things or are interested in owning all these things, how you have to check. Not that complicated. It's really pretty simple. You just can't compromise too much on this stuff and, you know, you'll have a good successful investment. With that, we've gone 14 minutes into energy stuff and I, I think this is a worthwhile discussion that I don't know that it's anything to be active on now. I really think that we're going to get into tech stuff at this point, sitting in the third week of July, with so much uncertainty, no matter what company you're interested in acquiring or acquiring more of, that's the way for the 10Q. And with that, we are seeing, we are going to see a 10Q for Tesla out this afternoon. As you know, from prior Wednesday, Mike and I are pretty interested in Tesla. We're interested at like $500 a share. Stockwood's trading at 50. Why are we interested? Because we think that it has very good cash flow characteristics with four factories. And uh, Mike has led you through all that. Uh, Mike and I were talking this morning. The earnings release for Tesla after the close is going to be an adventure because their factory in California probably did pretty well. Their factory in Shanghai, you know, was 
subject to the lockdowns that all these large tiny palm areas are going through. And and then the factory in Austin is new and the factory in, in, in Germany is new. One of the things that, that is evident, not only with Tesla, but with other the car manufacturers, you know, Ford, General Motors, the Chrysler, the Lattice, and, and Volkswagen, changing over to electric cars and getting volume up is very difficult to do. I mean, selling a bike's life is still waiting for a river to think. It's, we, we're on Tesla, and, and, and we will spend some time catching up on some of the other things we talk about every Wednesday. I want to turn over to Mike because the, uh, and try to quantify how bad the news could be as compared to if they hadn't had to cope with the lockdown in China. So over to you, Mike, in anticipation of the earnings release after the close today. Yeah, I, the ultimate question is, do does everyone look through to the run rate numbers? Because it sound, sounds like the run rate numbers were actually pretty good if you look at just the month of June for Shanghai. Unfortunately, it might be backsliding because of further lockdowns, but the California factory, interestingly, I, th- I think I read this somewhere and I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the email today if I can find it again, is that the, the California factory is actually producing more cars than any other factory in the U.S., which is pretty impressive considering it was a mothballed factory just a few years ago in probably the least favorable state that one could operate an automotive factory in. Yeah, all that is to say the numbers won't be good, but they're going to be really probably pushing the narrative of, hey, look what we did in June. Uh, and if we can keep that up, that's better. That the questions will likely be mostly on the earnings call about ramp at Berlin and Texas. And we know that for comments that Musk has made, it's He's referred to those factories as money furnaces. So it, it takes a while to ramp this stuff. Elon has made comment to companies like Rivian that, you know, don't underestimate how difficult it is to ramp manufacturing. So I, I think the key there is run rate will probably be pretty good for June. The quarter is going to be not, not great. And they're probably going to burn through a good chunk of cash. So does that put them in? A situation where the upside is essentially very good? I think so, because I think they will bring up those factories. I think there's plenty of demand for their vehicles. And I think they can easily get to 2 million cars plus a year with the factories they have. Yeah, I would say that'd be a 2 million run rate by the end of this year, early next year. So, you know, $500 is going to be about 10 times free cash flow, which for a business that should be able to grow 15% a year, something like that, 10% free cash yield plus 8% could be reasonably impressive. And I might be wrong on the free cash yield. Mike, it might only be 5% free cash yield at $500. That's correct. That $500 number assumes 2 million cars and... 5% 5% free cash yield. Yeah. So, you know, theoretically, if you buy something at 5% free cash yield, that's growing 15% a year, you're going to do 20% a year. Uh, what we're always saying is that 
you want to do at least 15%, and which doubles your money every five years. If you compare Tesla to Amazon, Apple, Google, to Microsoft, to NVIDIA, to AMD, to uh, Salesforce, all the kind of companies that attract our attention, uh, it's pretty hard on any of those companies. And the good news is all those companies do not use all their cash flow. Amazon's getting close, which makes my, get myself a little nervous, or at least the last quarter was a pretty high cap. Rate. But the question is, just as we were talking about oil and gas, given the macro situation that inflation reduced discretionary spending, you know, and any of these companies, through all of them together, or average amongst them, grow 10% a year, much less 15% a year. I don't think I or myself or others like us would be that comfortable making a case that Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, AMD, NVIDIA. I mean, where amongst those Salesforce where, where amongst those companies do we think any of them can grow? And, and remember, when we talk about growth, we're not just talk, we're not talking sales and net income. We're talking free cash flow, the real earnings, in other words, cash flow less capex. Uh, Mike, amongst all those companies, I mean, which one do you think, if, if you were picking one, they could grow its free cash flow ten percent a year over the next five years? Which one would you be? It's unfair to say which one, which one today, if you're going to pick one to work on this afternoon or this evening, which of that group of companies, which one would you pick first? If the, if it, if it's like, if it's like a sailboat race, the person who's going to win the windward leg is the one who picks the one that they can prove or prove to themselves can do 10%. Which company would you pick? Well, I think I could easily say. I feel pretty confident that Microsoft is well positioned to do that. They have a fantastic base in B2B software and cloud services. They're moving more into consumer, which will provide maybe more cyclical returns, but off of the very stable base that they have is in B2B software that they're going to be very well positioned. They've got a Activision merger that will improve their gaming platform. They just did a deal with Netflix, where they're going to run the advertising platform for Netflix's ad-supported business. So Microsoft's going to be in a pretty good, really the best place of all the big tech companies, I think. Right. Fair question is, okay, how, which one would you pick? I think that's obvious from my comments. If I had to pick from amongst those companies, uh, two of which I own and have owned for quite a while, Amazon and Google. I'm not ready to give up on either one of them. But all those companies, and I just don't know Microsoft as well as, as Mike does. I think I would pick, I think I would pick Tesla. And why is that? Well, I'm concerned about as profit margins are impacted by inflation, and kind of a slowdown in, in final demand, which is what the Fed is trying to induce to cope with the inflation. I'm concerned about advertising-driven businesses 
that's clearly Google, Facebook. And there's a fairly big slug of advertising, cash flow, if Amazon, some and Apple. I just, I know that the people in that field will say, well, this is the last thing you should do in a slowdown is curtail your ad budget or your, your, your promotion budget. I just think people will do it. As far as Apple uh, or other things, I mean, like Salesforce, maybe maybe some of the Microsoft B2B, I do think with margin, you know, under pressure, we've already seen a lot of these companies, Apple, Google, saying that the Goldman Sachs, when they announce earnings, that they're going to curtail some of their hiring. They'll be looking for ways to preserve their profit margin. And I, I do think, Mike and I haven't had a chance to really go over this, but I think B2B software is a little bit of a risk there where people go down over their software budget. Now, Apple has been a marvelous performer. And, you know, as long as you're not concerned about the macro risks in China, you'd say, why not Apple? Well, it seems to me that those iPhones are discretionary, you know, rather than replace one every 18 months, you replace every 36 months. And no matter how much progress Apple makes on services and, and uh, streaming stuff and whatnot, people can put off getting another iPhone. Could people put off getting another car? Absolutely. But I think the trend is going to be, and we've discussed this before, with 120 million households, 320 million of us, 250 million cars, I just think anyone thinking about Getting a car is going to think about having one gas car and one electric car. And I think that high gas prices encourage that, even though electricity prices have gone up too. But increasingly, I think electricity, is, there's technology out there, I think, that can price electricity by the hour. So if you're using electricity when everyone else is using it, it may be higher. Well, one of the things you can do and not worry about charging stations is if you are able at your home, whether it's an apartment or a house or whatnot, hook up at night and, you know, in effect, set your Tesla to be charged from, you know, 11, 11 at night till four in the morning. You, I think the technology is out there, certainly for industrial and commercial customers. I don't know about retail customers to basically charge you less for the electricity it's used during the evening. Uh, or during those, you know, periods when everyone's asleep. So I think the outlook for Tesla now, all these lockdowns in China don't help both making the cars and selling them. But I think there's a better bet to have the cash flow there, 20 billion, called 15% than, than some of these other entities. And with that, we'll, we've got about three minutes left. We'll turn the remaining three minutes over to Mike and we'll have Mike pick his number two choice to Microsoft and comment on whether or not his number two choice is Tesla. I must have misheard you the first time because I didn't realize Tesla was one we could pick. I think Tesla has become... <laughs> not fair. I, it, if it doesn't compound at 15% free cash flow growth over the next five years, I think everybody will be quite disappointed. So you could think about some of the things that would cause that to happen. It'd be relatively low likelihood situations, but something 
catastrophic happening in Shanghai where that Chinese factory is rendered useless, the inability to secure enough batteries, stuff like that ends up being your main risk factors, I think. But in general, I think they're well positioned to grow too. But the other one that I wanted to mention is Salesforce because Salesforce is quite well positioned for growth too. Again, this is sort of counter to what Hunt said, as far as B2B software, we are seeing some amount of indications of maybe a slight pullback in B2B software, at least expectations among purchasers. But in general, everybody seems to think if there's a pullback, it won't start happening until 2023, which sort of lines up with some analyst expectations of a real recession in 2023. So I, I'm less concerned about that. And I do think that Salesforce is well positioned for significant growth. Again, we actually haven't run through that 10 Q and maybe we should make that a, an exercise and talk about the valuation because it is still it's cheaper now than it was, but it probably doesn't end up being 20x free cash flow. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I think next week we ought to focus on the 10 Qs. And I mean, let's let Pioneer and Diamondback and Magnolia take care of themselves. They'll, the energy companies are always a little slower reporting, so we can do those later. But I think we can focus in on the, the companies. And what we want to focus in on is just like we have with Tesla, what is the price? What to get you to a 5% cash yield? And it's going to be harder to do with some of, you know, some of these companies, Salesforce, Microsoft, you know, it, it'll be interesting to figure out where, where that 5% cash flow level is because oftentimes these companies, you know, regularly trade two or 3% for cash yield. So that's something, that's something we can focus on for next week. And in the meantime, those of you from the Northeast know that Finally, you know, for the longest time, we thought the Southwest and the Midwest were getting a lot of heat, but we were going to escape in the Northeast. But we have heat now. And the only thing I'll say about heat is for us sailors in the Northeast, depending on thermals, hopefully the heat will provide good wind in the late afternoon. In the meantime, everyone be well, stay healthy, and we'll talk next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.